welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and if you're listening to this on the week that it is being published or there or thereabouts, uh, it's been a sad week for the Irish community both at home and abroad and let's start there because news was announced this week that Christy Dignam, the lead singer of Aslan, uh, passed away this week after a very long uh, illness. He had cancer for many, many years. And um, I was lucky enough to work with Christian and get to know him a little bit. Everybody in Ireland, I think, worked with Christian Asla at some point. Everybody you meet has some memory of them. And for those of you, this podcast is for the 70 million odd Irish around the world. For those of you who don't know Aslan, they came up in the 1980s and they were basically, you know, like they were the next big thing. I hate to say the next U2 because, you know, to me they were entirely separate and in many cases much, much better than what U2 were. But I'd, I often said that uh, if Aslan got as big as they should have got, there would never have been any need for Oasis because they had both absolutely brilliant songs and no shortage of drama in the band. And Christy himself was a very special character. Um, he would go onto the stage barefoot seeing and just be sort of encapsulated in the moment just I, I can't ever remember seeing a performer like him in my life just an incredible man incredible singer incredible songwriter uh, incredible interpreter of songs and it's such a great shame to see him go so if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about the little bit of work that I did with them and my memories of him I went on Twitter spaces the other night and just recorded a thing I just spoke for about half an hour about what he meant to me and what the band's music meant to me and that kind of thing so if that's your thing go to at Philip O'Connor on Twitter and have a little to listen back to that it was very emotional I have to say something that's affected me not least because when something like this happens uh, for those of us who live abroad it can be quite difficult because we don't often have somebody that we can share it with you know if you if you live in in Dublin or if you live in Cork or in Galway among Irish people then you know it's on the radio there it's very accessible in a different way and I didn't really feel I had anybody to share it with which is why I went on Twitter spaces but uh, whereas I'm extremely sad uh, at the passing of Christy, I'm just I'm so delighted that we had him, that that he existed, and that we have this great body of work. And there's any amount of stuff on YouTube, and Spotify, and everything that we can remember him by. So, rest in peace, in peace, Christy, and thank you for everything uh, that you did and that you gave us. And the odd thing about that was that uh, the day that I recorded this interview you're about to hear was the same day that Christy passed away. And the person you're about to hear from today is the marvellous, the majestic, the hilarious and the generally brilliant Barry Glendening. Barry is an Irish journalist. Uh, I don't even know if journalist is the right word, you know, because he's one of those people who sort of transcends any label in what he's done because he's been a stand-up comedian, he's been a journalist and what he does these days seems to be somewhat in between the two. He's a podcaster, he's part of the Guardian Football Weekly podcast which is one of the most popular so uh, soccer podcasts on the planet. And we actually mentioned Christy because... Um, as you'll hear in the conversation, he used to work for a music magazine called Hot Press back in the day and go to free gigs and all that kind of thing. So he would have been in the, in the same circles. You know, We never knew each other all that well back then, but we certainly moved in the same circles in Dublin before the two of us moved abroad within a week of each other. Before we get into that, remember, this is a community-supported podcast. Patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. Five of a month, lads. That's all. Uh, on that feed, uh, that goes to the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast feed. On that, you have the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. You have the Global Gale podcast which is what you're listening to now you have the Irish and Sweden podcast which has loads of great interviews that are probably of interest to a global audience as well and occasionally I have Premier Swedes where I talk to Swedish footballers who have played in the Premier League Zlatan Ibrahimovic has retired so he's no excuse now I have to dig him up and see if he'll go on to talk about uh, his time at Manchester United and everything that he got up to there 
But listen, I really enjoyed making this chat now with Barry Glendening. So I'm just going to bring it to you and you get a bit of crack out of it because he is a hilarious individual with an amazing story altogether of just falling into things. So here he is, the accidental journalist, Barry Glendening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Barry, let's go back, I suppose, to the very beginning. You and I were once neighbours when you lived just off Griffith Avenue in Dublin, but that was a different time because I think you were both dabbling in stand-up comedy and working for Hot Press back at the late 90s. Was that what made you split for London in the end or what were you up to at that time? Um, Right, I didn't know we were neighbours and I'd completely forgotten I lived just off Griffith Avenue, yes. Uh, Charlemont, the housing estate, 313, as I recall. Um with top uh, Dublin impresario Buzz O'Neill was one of my housemates. Yeah, he was here in Stockholm actually with Shamrock Rovers a few that's that's sort of how we indirectly know each other is through through Buzz and that house that you lived in together there, yeah. So he was actually over here in Stockholm recently when Shamrock Rovers were over here naturally enough, you know. Yeah, Buzz got me into supporting Shamrock Rovers which is aggravation I didn't need but anyway, yeah, (laughs) I, um, I, I was sort of not really doing anything. I dropped out of uni because I'd been doing arts in UCD and I really didn't want to be in UCD because I wanted to go to Trinity, so I didn't get in. And then I didn't want to do arts because it was, well, the subjects I was doing didn't interest me, but it was all I got from my very mediocre leaving source. So anyway, I yeah, I, I was kind of bumming around Dublin, not doing a great deal. And um one day I bought a copy of Hot Press for some reason or other. I can't remember. I wasn't much of a muso, but um, uh, and and in this uh, issue of Hot Press, there was a journal. They were running a journalism competition in conjunction with uh, this Network Two show, Sunday morning show, and or uh, called the Beatbox, which was I don't know if you remember. It was hosted by Ian Dempsey and. You know, he he played music videos basically, and Smiley Bulger would come on and give the local or the latest showbiz gossip and whatnot. So anyway, um, as this competition entailed writing a, a review of an album or a single or a gig and sending it in, and it was being run over, you know, ten week period or something, and uh, each. Each fortnight, there were two winners, and so you'd go on the beatbox and, and uh, have to read out this review or present it to camera. Uh, so I entered, and I uh, wrote... At the time, the Pope was visiting uh, the Philippines, and he said Mass in Manila to a congregation of four million people. And um, I reviewed that as if it was a rock concert. Uh, anyway, uh, so I... I went, ended up winning the competition, and as part of the prize, I got a laptop. Um, I, yeah, back in the days when laptops were quite rare and incredibly expensive, uh, and I yeah, so I got a laptop that I didn't really know how to use, and I got some money which I did know how to use. I presumably poured that down my throat, and uh, part of the prize was a commission to write for articles for hot press so i i did the articles and they kind of offered me a job and so that's how i ended up in hot press uh, and i used to like help out with production and 
uh, I was in charge of curating the comedy section, which was sponsored by Murphy's. Uh, and, you know, used to review gigs and write in, do, do features, interviews and stuff. Uh, so that was great fun. Um, and, it, you know, as working for Hoppers, this, this was in the days sort of before the internet was only sort of getting going at this stage. So it was just a fortnightly cycle where you would just drink in the international bar for five days and, you know, sort of mooch in and out of the office occasionally. And then you'd have a few days of quite hard work and then several days of very intensive labour getting the magazine together. Um, and then you, you got, because it was hot press, uh, you got, you could go to gigs for free. You got books and records for free, lots of free stuff. I mean, the pay was peanuts, but it was enough for me to get by. And then you got lots of free stuff on top of it. You got to meet lots of quite interesting people. Um, and uh, while working for Hot Press, uh, I suggested one day uh, that I might do a stand-up gig and write about the experience of doing stand-up. I mean, everyone, that that's such a common thing now. It's kind of got boring, but I, I'm not sure too many people had done it at the time. So I did a, a, a spot in the Comedy Cellar, which went really well, much to my surprise. And then I, I kind of caught the bug and kept doing it. And I, I was okay at it, um, but not uh, great. Like... Uh, who I'm just trying to think who my contemporaries would have been at the time. Daryl Breen was was sort of getting established in Dublin at the time. Jason Byrne was getting established. Um, Ed Byrne and Dylan Moran and I was about to call him Moran. Dylan Moran and uh, Ardell O'Hanlon had already gone to to London to make their fortunes. Um, Barry Murphy was very much the the doyen of of Irish stand up at the time, uh, so yeah, I I was doing okay at it, and I was getting bored with life in Dublin, um. So I decided I'd go to London and have a bash at stand up there, but I had no idea how difficult it would be, and I quickly became apparent that I probably wasn't really good enough. I, I if I'd applied myself more, I could have um probably been a bang average club comic but I didn't apply myself um, I just sort of went in the piss well, Are you sort of underselling yourself there Barry because as far as I remember didn't you win the Perrier Award at the Edinburgh Festival at one point? Oh no, fuck I didn't, no <laughs> well, Wasn't there some award you won though, something like that No, that you got no, there, no? Um, there, was, there was a competition I mean the Perrier Awards, the, the top award in, it's, it's not called the Perrier Award anymore but everyone still refers to it as the Perrier Award that's like the top uh, gong at the festival for um, established comics. Like Dylan's won it, Tommy Tiernan's won it. Um, uh, anyway, no, I, I I got to go to Edinburgh and participate in this Channel 4 competition for newcomers called So You Think You're Funny. That's what it was, um, yeah. But I, I certainly didn't win it. Uh, Peter Kay won it the, the year I was in it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure whatever became of him, but yeah, I, I, I was, uh, you know, just goes to show you win an award like that, it, it doesn't necessarily serve as a launch pad. Uh, Peter <laughs> K has since sunk into obscurity, 
I hope um, he's well wherever he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a friend of mine saw him in the O2 Arena in London a couple of weeks ago. I think he's doing about three month residency there, like eighteen thousand people a night. In so fucking cornflake balls at this stage, yeah. Oh god, uh, sick in you. Anyway, uh, that yeah, here's what you could have won, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> But when you got to London, because it's one of those things, I've talked to a few comics over the, over the time, you know, you mentioned that the, the comedy seller, you had the Dublin Improv, which is still going to this day. They were brilliant nights, you know, Wednesdays and Mondays in there. But mm. was 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 London and the circuit in England, was that completely different? Did you find that sort of much a much harsher environment to be performing in? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, Dublin's a very small city. And if you're in, you know, sort of loosely adherent to the comedy scene in Dublin, you know everyone who else who's involved. Um, whereas in London's massive, there's comedy clubs all over the place. When I came to London, I did not know, I knew two people in London, like literally knew two people uh, out of nine million. Um, and they were mates of mine from school who had been in boarding school with in Ross Gray. And uh, they were both working in the city. They were bankers. Uh, or accountants or whatever. Well, I don't know what they did. They went to a skyscraper in Canary Wharf every day in a suit and came home every night. And, you know, that, uh, seemed to be doing quite well for themselves. They're probably um, looking after Peter Kay's money by now. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, so, yeah, I, I literally didn't know anyone. And uh, my sister is friends with Ed Burns' sister. They're very close friends from, they were in university together. And I'd done a, couple of gigs with Ed so I kind of vaguely knew Ed and rang him and he gave me a few numbers of people to ring and so yeah you, you just start doing open spots at various clubs so I that's what I was doing and I was doing them with people like Jimmy Carr uh, another fella don't know whatever happened to him <laughs> uh, Shappy Carsandy um, uh, yeah a few other people who've since gone on to great things. And uh, I, I got to the stage where I was getting paid gigs here and there, and I was sent on a tour. Uh, but I, I wasn't making enough money to, to live. You know, London's a very expensive place. Uh, so I was working as well. And uh, <clears throat> I, I got sent... This, this agent saw me at a gig and sent me on a tour of the West Country with a fellow called Brendan Burns, who he he's an Australian uh, who won the Perrier Award. And he was an absolute mad bastard, real nice guy, but a lunatic. And uh, I went on tour with him for a week and that kind of finished me off altogether. Um, I just decided this, this is not the life for me. I can't handle it. And if I keep doing it, I'll be dead in a year. Uh, so yeah, I kind of packed it in. But my last, the last stand-up gig I ever did, I was the compare at uh, I think it's a comedy cafe in East London. So I was the compare at a gig, uh, and there was about three or four hundred people there. So you know, I was doing okay, but I just my heart wasn't in it, and I wasn't. I don't think I was funny enough. You know, when I see how good people like Darrell Breen are and Dylan. Uh, you know, Kevin Bridges and that uh, I I just couldn't hold a candle to any of those guys. 
But um, I am mates now. One of my best friends here, through just it's not not through comedy we became friends. He he's works for an agency over here called Off the Curve, which handles loads of the big name comedians, and he's good friends with Dara. So I kind of met him through Dara. And we happen to live near each other, so we just used to go drinking together, and now we're we're good friends. But uh, so I I still go to quite a few comedy gigs because he gets me into them for free, and uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I but I'm not. I used to be a real comedy nerd, but I'm not anymore. Mm. Was it difficult then to make the transition? Because once you've worked in journalism, especially for a place like Hot Press, you mentioned all the free stuff. You can go wherever you want. Uh, there's an excuse to go for points in the afternoon. Nobody's ever going to look at you. You know, oh, it's all right, mate. I'm a journalist kind of thing. But then you kind of had to get a sort of a proper job in London when you were done with the comedy. That sort of idea of making a career, that was gone. Was journalism the thing you said, right, I'm going to go do this? Did you call up your buddies and maybe try to get a job as a banker or an accountant down in Canary Wharf? What was the, the sort of thought process there? God, I would be a terrible banker. Uh, <laughs> I really would. Um, no, it was, again, it was pure luck. <clears throat> I happened to be in a flat share with uh, two girls in Clapham. Uh, and one of them, a very nice Scottish girl, who I'm still friends with, Madeline, uh, she happened to be, she happened to work on the Observer picture desk. And uh, she saw an ad on the, Guardian slash Observer staff notice board. They were looking, they were sort of launching their website and they needed people to work on the website. So they were looking for people to do uploading shifts and which is basically just taking the copy from the paper and putting it online and gussying it up with a headline and a picture and a caption and all that stuff. And uh, so, you know, it was right up my street. So I, I, sort of applied for some shifts, got some shifts, uh, ended up on the sports desk. And at that stage, the Guardian sports website was basically three blokes in a corner of an office doing absolutely whatever they liked and without anyone paying the slightest bit of attention to them because people thought, oh, this website thing will never catch on. And uh, I, I got put in with them and I used to just do regular freelance shifts and uh, I suppose, you know, I was pretty decent at it. And then I, they were always shorthanded. So I started doing other interviews and whatever, writing features and news reports, whatever needed to be done. And then, they, yeah, they. I, th I think if you just hang around somewhere long enough and you're not a completely objectionable human being, eventually someone will just offer you a job. And that, that's what happened at the Guardian. <laughs> This is kind and of I, a recur it's a recurring theme in your life, this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just just keep turning up, you know. Uh, yeah. well, what was, you know, Jay Humphrey is is loves his high performance, and he's you know, there's nothing you can't achieve if you really put your mind to it. And I go, well, steady on, Jake. You know, I might really want to be a Formula One driver, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a lot of shit would have to go wrong before somebody give you the keys of a Formula One car. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't even fit in the bloody cockpit for a start. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I I think I'm reasonably good crack to have around in the workplace. Um, and I'm quite diligent and reasonably competent. So, yeah, I, I got a job at The Guardian. I've been there ever since. Mm. And 
you you kind of started to ride that wave of the internet. As you mentioned, you know, people thought, oh, this website thing will never take off. And The Guardian was one of the first to realize that actually there's different things we can do here. So you found yourself doing things like uh, you were doing live blogs on matches before we even knew what fucking live blogs were. Did that come from yeah. you or was that just you and the boys in the corner going, oh, we should give this a go for the crack? Um, they were doing it before I arrived. Uh, uh, I think it was Sean Ingle was who's now the sort of chief sports correspondent of the Guardian or mm. chief news guy, sports news guy. I think it was he was the boss of the website. I think when I started there full time, I think it was his idea, uh, and he has a lot to answer for. I have to say because now everyone everyone's doing it, yeah, but they're incredibly popular. You know, I, I, it's quite weird. If if I'm out and about and there's a match on that I can't watch for whatever reason, um, I just check the score. I, it never really occurs to me to to check a rolling report of what's happening, even though I do like a hundred of them a year, maybe. Um, but yeah, they, they are they get insane numbers and people. You get like I did the Champions League final the other night. And you, you kind of invite people to email in and they often do in their hundreds, hundreds of emails you might get. And, you, you know, if the match is quite busy or there's a lot going on, you, you don't really have time to read any of these emails or publish them. But it's only like I, and then I do. One of my favorite things to do, actually, uh, is the, the Tour de France live blogs, because often in a stage of the Tour de France, literally nothing will happen for five hours and then there's a big sprint finish at the end. Uh, so you've lots of time to interact with readers and go off piste and discuss other things. And I just like watching, you know, bike racing. The reason I didn't know about your Tour de France blogging is because I hate cycling, but I've commentated oh. on these extreme triathlons for like 12 or 13 hours in a go. And you can literally read every comment you get because it's 12 hours. And, you know, the, like the swimming takes an hour, the fucking 180k on the bike takes for it. And then there's a marathon at the end. So, but it is, there's a lot of people do this now, Barry. And I think I, I sort of make you and the Guardian synonymous with this because that was where it first came into my consciousness. Sweden, where I live, has been very much ahead in the sort of, you know, web TV, that kind of thing. But I've never really seen anybody do it better, you know, than what the Guardian does. Is that because you guys sort of embraced humor? You went, you didn't really take it ourselves as seriously as maybe what if the Times of London had done it, it might have been a whole different ball game. But you were there to have those conversations and to have that interaction with people. You never put yourself above people. Is that the secret of it, or have you ever even considered why this actually fucking works? Um, I think. The Guardian Sports website, just purely by dint of the people who used to work on it, we set a tone very early. And like I say, we were just working away in the corner and no one paid us any attention. So we could almost literally do anything we wanted. And I think back to some of the things we did do, just putting really inappropriate pictures on serious news stories and, you know, ridiculous picture captions. Uh, and you know, they they were probably incredibly offensive uh, at the time. Uh, but yeah, no, as I say, no one seemed to pay us anything. I do remember there was one one day someone from the Observer um, rang our desk and asked if we'd been hacked <laughs> because. <laughs> 
the series of headlines and subheadlines on the the website. We we'd always just put really sarcastic, um, so yeah, sarcastic headlines. You know, a sarcastic headline, sarcastic subheadlines and stuff. Sarcastic. So you couldn't tell if it was the Observer or the Onion that you were reading at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, and um, we just didn't take things very seriously. I mean, nowadays people take well, football is what I have to deal with mainly. People take it so bloody seriously. It, you know, I I want to weep sometimes at how seriously some people take it. But um, yeah. So I, anyway, we kind of set a tone quite early and, and we've always managed to maintain that tone so we you know you will get the information but it isn't presented as you know a matter of life and death or whatever I think the Guardians I'm quite into cricket and I like going to cricket and I live near the Oval you know so there's lots of opportunities to go to cricket but um, I think the Guardians over by over coverage of test matches is absolutely second to none. Now I don't do it because I'm not knowledgeable enough about cricket to be able to do the the OBO. I tried it once, and uh, I think in the first over I was covering Andy Caddick took three wickets, and I was just all over the shop. So that was <laughs> that was my over by over career ending before it even got off the ground. Um, but yeah, they they're brilliant because obviously a day of test cricket. It lasts seven, eight hours. Uh, there are regular breaks because it's raining or people are having lunch or tea or whatever. So there's lots of room to mess around and and people seem to really love it. Yeah, you're part of one of the world's biggest football podcasts in the Guardian Football Weekly. What's your own relationship to football there? Because you mentioned that so many people have this fucking po-faced attitude to it. They're almost like some sort of fundamentalist when it comes to their club or to their country or to their team. Can you do you enjoy football anymore? Because I find myself covering football now and I just don't I don't get the same buzz out of it as I did in Italia 90 or USA 94 or when I was a kid watching the World Cup in Argentina. Do, do you have a do you enjoy the game? still uh i enjoy the game there's loads and loads of stuff going on around the game that i absolutely hate um but it's unavoidable uh you know the, the tribalism and some fans the toxicity that uh seems to have become i don't know if it's was always there and we just weren't aware of it because there was no social media or um, if it's because of social media. But my relationship with, with football is grand because I, I support Sunderland, but I support them from hundreds of miles away. I, uh, I'm i very much an armchair fan. I go to the odd game if they're down in London because one of my mates here in Brixton where I live is, is a mad Sunderland fan from Sunderland not Jonathan Wilson actually in case you're wondering but a different Jonathan from, from Sunderland and um, I I don't particularly care if Sunderland win or lose you know if they're doing well I'm, I'm happy for them uh, you know when they got promoted from the Premier League I didn't weep and wail about it uh, I don't get upset if a team I support you know my main I suppose team that I would have supported since I was a kid was, is the Offaly Hurling team and the Burr Hurling team and you know they're having a pretty fallow time for it at the moment and have been for some years Doesn't I don't cry myself to sleep over at night 
the fact that they're doing badly. Um, I will watch Ireland's game against, you know, at, at the time of talking, Ireland are due to face Greece. Uh, I will watch that. In a Euro- it's a European qualifier. I hope Ireland win. If they don't, don't really give a shit. Um, so my relationship with football is I'm, I'm kind of handcuffed to it because I have to do three podcasts a week, you know, talking about it. I have to watch a lot of games. I have to watch uh the highlights of loads of games I would otherwise have zero interest in. Um I have to have opinions about stuff that's going on off the pitch. Um and I'm quite happy to do that. I think I'm very lucky that that's my job because it's loads of people would kill to have that job. But like any job, you you do get sick of it sometimes. Um it's it's uh June and we're in early or mid June at the moment. I'm really looking forward to being able to, you know, not have to worry about football for a few weeks and enjoy the Tour de France, enjoy Royal Ascot, enjoy Wimbledon. Um, so, yeah, I, I am shackled to football. I suppose the acid test will come when at some point I don't have to worry about it anymore. Will I still watch it? I'd say there's quite a good chance I won't for a year. <laughs> I'll, just, so, I'll take a year is- off. This is the thing that's fascinating because you know you are one of the most knowledgeable people about the game. You've watched so many games, and I kind of feel that you know that you know that we've seen more games than most people will ever see in their lives. You know, and yet at the same time, I can no longer remember the details of a game I saw two, a week ago. You know, I just oh, yeah, I can't yeah. remember who scored the other day. I was crediting somebody with a goal that they didn't score at all. They had the assist, and it's all just nonsense to me now because but I, I don't get as engaged. You have to watch so much of it. You you can't retain all that information. So if you watch one game over a weekend you will remember what happened in it, you know, mm. two weeks later. If you watch six games over a weekend and all the highlights of the other games, yeah, it's all just as soon as you don't need any, that information anymore, it leaves your head. <laughs> um, <laughs> and because you need to make room for the next round of games. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we often get questions into the podcast. Do, do you guys even like football? And you go, well, yeah, I do. But there's lots about football that's absolutely shit. Uh, mm. the, the corruption, the toxicity, the racism, the homophobia. I don't like that. Uh, and But apparently, if you, if you talk about it and point it out and say this is a bad thing, you know, Saudi takeover is a bad thing, then it means you don't like football. Uh, you, you can like football in it. I think if anything, it shows we 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 love it more than most because we're highlighting the things that are wrong with it and that we would like to see fixed. Mm. You're you're still sort of putting up with it despite all these ugly things that are happening in the yeah, game, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And um, I wanted to ask you about one of the things that I noticed back, but it'd be a couple of years ago now. It was at Euro 2021 or Euro 2020, which was played in 2021. And I remember the two of us were working that night. You were doing uh, the Denmark against Finland game on the Guardian live blog. And I was in the stadium. Now, often when you're doing your live blogs, I'm watching the same game or I'm watching a different game. So I can't follow them all the time as much as I used to when you were doing this in the beginning. But I remember going back after Christian Eriksson had his heart attack and I read what you were writing around that time. And it chimed exactly with my experience of being in the stadium. And you talked about your own, how you felt about that personally. Did you find working that night difficult? Did you find it difficult to blog about a situation where that chap basically died in front of us? Um, I wouldn't say I found it difficult. Um, 
I, I do remember that when it became apparent the game was going to continue, you know, he'd been shuttled off in an ambulance and no one knew what was going to happen to him. And UEFA, in their wisdom, forced these poor fuckers from both sides, particularly Denmark, to continue the game. Someone in the office, they didn't ask, would you like to, you know, are they didn't ask me. They, they basically told me, you know, oh, someone else is here ready to take over and continue the live blog on instead of you. And I went, no, I'm, I'm happy to do it. You know, I'm fine. But um, I do remember when we recorded the podcast afterwards that I, I got quite upset because, well, A, it's quite an upsetting thing to see happen. Uh, a footballer collapsing on a pitch and all his teammates in obvious distress and there's a very good chance this guy is dead um, and also because Christian Eriksen's a player I've kind of kept an eye on all his career ever since he was a 16 or 17 year old with Ajax I think it was I think I just saw an Ajax game one night and he was really really good and I was like oh, who's this fella and looked him up and Christian Eriksen. I think he was only a teenager, only a boy. So I've always just kept kept an eye on his progress ever since and obviously went on to be a terrific player and still is to an extent, although he didn't cover himself in glory in the FA Cup final, I think, as I recall. Um, but, yeah, so that, that kind of was upsetting just because I closely monitored, not closely monitored, but he was always a player I took an interest in just because I'd spotted him I, I'm very bad at, you know, if, if there's something happening in a game from a tactical point of view. So I'm very bad at spotting it. Or, But he, he was so good in that game. I can't even remember who they were playing. But, Finland, uh, yeah. I, no, no, no. Uh, I mean, this game. Oh, I when you saw him play, for when, Ajax, when, yeah, yeah. When he was a kid that he, you know, I went, oh, he's, this guy's really good. Um, so, yeah, I kind of monitored his progress so to see him in such a bad way at those euros in it was in copenhagen as well that game wasn't it yeah it was uh, yeah. yeah in front of it just collapsing his teammates the home fans there what they must have been going through is incredible and then to, to force the players to continue the game mm. well you know that's uefa for you isn't it I remember um, the centre-back, Seaman Carr, who's the captain of the team, just going off yeah. in the second half because, you know, it took so long. And then they said, OK, the game is going to restart. For some reason, I think they said it was going to restart at 8 o'clock in the evening. And Carr came back out and, you know, just about on the hour mark, or maybe 10 minutes, he just went, I can't fucking do this anymore. And I've spoken to to players and coaches and people involved in that game afterwards. And pretty much the, the vibe is that, you know, UEFA said, you have to go back out. We're not coming back to do this again. You either forfeit the game or you play it to the conclusion, they're your options, you know, that's just a fucking horrendous thing, you know. Um, was that, does, do nights like that, was there any other games that you did live blogs for that stuck out for good or, or bad reasons? Like, were you uh, online the night Liverpool won the European Cup? Or what was your favourite game in terms of that kind of thing? Um, n- no, uh, is the answer. <laughs> I, I've done live blogs of, I think, World Cup finals, European Cup finals, big Premier League deciders, uh, Champions League finals, and I can barely remember any of them, you know, 
uh, is the God honest truth. That that one sticks out in my mind. Uh, there aren't many others. So there's a very good chance I did do the Champions League in 2005, but if I did, I don't remember. Hmm. It's gas when it happens, isn't it? You know, these <laughs> well, world you know, events just... happen and you just move on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't have a very good memory anyway, but uh, you just do it, it's done, and then sort of do the next one. <laughs> <laughs> he said, move on to the next one you know yeah. that's the thing he'll be wrapping tomorrow's chips could I ask you Barry about your own relationship you mentioned it when you moved to, to London first right and you know it was your sister and Ed Byrne's sister knew the, the, each other from university and then Ed helped you with a couple of numbers that kind of thing do you have much contact with the Irish community per se there do you feel part of an Irish community in London at all uh, no not really um, I don't seek out the company of Irish people. I'm not a member of the London and Ireland sort of there's some sort of society or club somewhere in London. I'm, uh, but I live in Brixton. The my local pub uh, happens to be owned by an Irish man and is now in the last few months being run by a an Irish bloke, Kilkenny man, who's mad into his hurling. Uh, and it's not an Irish pub. It's a backstreet pub in Brixton named after, a, you know, a low rent royal. Um, but, yeah, it's quite, quite, it serves great Guinness and quite a few of the customers happen to be Irish. And I, I'm a regular in there. I know most of the people who drink in there and quite a few of them happen to be Irish. But I, I didn't seek them out or anything. I'm mm. very much happy to sort of hang around. You know, I would rather hang around with a an English person whose f- company I find agreeable than an Irishman who's a bit of a twat. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. I suppose I've often said, you know, it, like if I want to meet Irish people a lot of the time, I'd do that in Dublin or I'll do that yeah, in Burr yeah. or wherever you happen to be. You know, um, has has you have you ever had? Any abuse, you know, I'm sure you get it online, you know, when if you were saying sort of with the England national team or that, but because mm. of your Irishness, do people give you a hard time sometimes over there, or is it something that you haven't noticed? No, never. I've I've never got any grief. I mean, I will get occasionally slagged off in the, the pub for you know uh someone who called me an Irish fucker or whatever. But um it's it's all good natured and I've never experienced any anti Irish sentiment. Um, in in London, I, which is not to say it doesn't exist. It's just personally, I've never experienced any, or mm. unless I have and I didn't even notice. I, but I, I don't think I have. Yeah, maybe it's not sensitive. The radar isn't tuned to that kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. You're just, or you've got it. You just don't care about it. No? Yeah, I, um, I, I really, I don't particularly care. So, um, but no, I, I, I personally haven't experienced any anti-Irish. I'm trying to think now. Have I? No, not that I recall. Is London home now? Because, you know, you mentioned Offaly hurling and that kind of thing. There's very little of Offaly hurling in London, despite how badly yeah. they're doing. They're not reduced to play in London just yet, you know. Is that, uh, is that what you consider your home now, or is it still Barron County Offaly and those environs, as they say in French? Uh, that's a good question. I think I'd probably consider London my home now. I obviously love Burr. My mum still lives there. The family home is still there. Um, and I go back there four or five times a year if I can. Um, but, yeah, I would definitely consider London home now, I think. I, I, I was at a funeral last week 
Uh, it was actually a, an old Irish boy who used to drink in the pub and uh, he, he died and his funeral was on. So a few of us went and we were up at the crematorium in West Norwood, which is in, in South London. And uh, someone said, someone asked me, like, if you if you die, what, what do we do? You know, do you, do you get shipped home? Do you get cremated in London? What what happens? And I was thinking, oh, I don't really care. Um you know, I'd be I'd be quite happy to to end up in London, you know, <laughs> bring a handful of me back to Burr and throw it on the the GA pitch or in the the little Brosnan River or whatever. But um, yeah, I think I probably do consider London home now. I can't imagine returning to settle in Burr uh, in retirement or whatever. But um, like, well, I I own a flat in Brixton which has got quite posh or is getting increasingly posh because of, you know, Ponzi fuckers like me moving into the area over the last 20 years. And one of my mates from Borough said, oh, that, you know, that your flat must be worth a fortune now. It's great, great to have as a pension. And I, I think, well, it's only great to have as a pension if you plan on selling it. And I, I have no plans on selling it. You know, I want to live in it uh, because I consider myself not just a Londoner, I consider myself a South Londoner uh, and a, a very much a Brixtoner. So, because um, I've lived here for quite a long time now and I absolutely love it. You wouldn't ever consider moving to any other part of London? I kind of the same about where no I live in, chance. in Stockholm. Absolutely yeah. no chance. No. None? No. That's very categorical uh, altogether. Yeah. And it's weird because I only ended up in South London by accident because that's where the two guys I, I knew happened to live. Um and I've only lived in, like I stayed, kept on their sofa for a, a week. Then I moved into a flat with the two girls I mentioned earlier. And then uh, I stayed in that flat for about eight years. And then I moved to Brixton. I've only lived in two different places in London uh, in in my 24 years here. And both, you know, they're only a couple of miles apart. So I'm very much uh, a South Londoner. Um, or a southwest Londoner, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's just because I have a pathological hatred of the effort involved in moving house. Uh, you know, so. Oh fuck! No, I've said I'm going out of this house. I'm sitting in now. I'm going out of here feet first, pal, because I oh, just yeah, couldn't yeah. face that again. Yeah. You know, and the, the career that you've had, right? It hasn't. It's not the most stable of environments in journalism and media and that kind of thing. And you mentioned your friend saying to you, "Oh, owning a flat—that's a great pension and that kind of thing." How do you see it? I have sort of resigned myself. Uh, to, I'm going to be working till the day before they put me in the ground, Barry, because that's just what life is like as a freelancer. You don't have that, you know, pension coming that's going to keep you in the style to which you become accustomed. Is that something you've thought about? Because it's something that a lot of Irish people, I suppose, you know, it's the position that they're in in London, you know, haven't worked all their lives. And now you get to sort of 55, 60, you've gone, shit, hang on a second. I actually have to do something in, with the later years of my life as well. You know? <laughs> well, um, I live a very unhealthy lifestyle. I'm overweight, I'm unfit, I smoke and I drink too much. Uh, so I don't think I'll have a very long life after after I'm finished working. So that's one thing. You almost um, make it sound deliberate. It's like I can't afford to be old. <laughs> no, but um, I I'm a staff journalist with the Guardian. I've been there a long time. I'm single. I don't have any dependents, so I do all right for myself. You know, I'm not obviously couldn't retire tomorrow, but I I make enough money to support myself. Uh, so. 
that's not so much an issue for me at the moment. Although you've just, I think, struck terror into me with. Yeah, just, <laughs> Sorry about I, that. I am fifty. Yeah, but I mean, if I had a wife and three kids, I, I think I'd be screwed. <laughs> yeah, I'd be absolutely. <laughs> There's no chance I'd be because uh, you know I I probably get paid quite well, um, and the cost of living crisis. It's not just talk, you know, everything is very expensive. And I do, I, I'm thinking, right, well, I, I get paid quite well and all my money's gone at the end of the month. But how are other people managing? Because, you know, I don't have kids. I don't I don't have to buy trainers for kids or I'm only shopping for myself. Um, and then I think, yeah, well, I suppose you, if I stopped drinking and smoking, I'd probably have an extra, you know, four grand a month to play around with. <laughs> <laughs> that might be where it's all gone wrong. All right? They'll put that yeah, in a pension yeah. instead, you know? Yeah. And you did stand-up comedy, you know, by accident. You did journalism by accident. Uh, you're yeah. in there now. You seem I, to be very my, comfortable. My entire career happened by mistake. It's like that line from Withenail and I, we're on holidays by mistake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But do you ever see, you know, do you ever think to yourself, oh, I'd like to do this. I'd like to write a book. I'd like to do a history podcast about awfully hurling. Do you, or do you, are you just content to go with the flow as you've pretty much been for a lot of your career? Um, I, I, I have been asked to write books and I've always said no, because what would happen is I'd get an advance and I'd spend it. And then when the deadline came to deliver the book, I would just have a sheaf of empty pages and then I'd have to give the money back. Um, I don't think I have the self-discipline required to write a book. I'm not convinced I have anything particularly interesting to say. And there are an awful lot of terrible books out there in the world already. And I don't want to add to the pile. Um, but yeah, something I might consider at some point. I have I have a couple of ideas for books, but I'm quite a lazy person. I have no ambition whatsoever, and I'm quite content to just meander along. Like I don't have a plan. I don't have set myself goals. I'm 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 everything. You know, these performance gurus that you have now with their podcasts telling us all that we should, you know unless you get up at five o'clock in the morning and eat, uh, I don't know, porridge and, and avocado and have meditate. And then you have to have goals that you want to achieve. And my, my goal at the end of the day is, you know, try to try to still be alive and don't be a cunt. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's literally my ambition each day. <laughs> do whatever you have to do work-wise uh try not to die and yeah try not to be an arsehole to people do you manage and to I achieve it's, that it's goal a reason, what do you manage to achieve that goal most days well i'm still alive uh there are certainly i i do try not to be an arsehole it doesn't know i don't always pull it off but um yeah i, I just i don't really have any ambition i i like my life the way it is and hmm. I think I've quite a good life. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't set myself targets or, you know, in five years you have to be doing this or that or whatever. I, I just quite happy just poodling along as I am. 
If you look back, was it 1999 that you moved to London, was it? The I think it was the 3rd of June, 1999. Yeah, because yeah. if you left Charlemagne then, I left Philsburg Avenue five days later and moved to Sweden. So it's uh, All right. Tied was up that, a little bit there. Was that anything to do with me? <laughs> no, are you, you just inspired me, you know. Go west, young man. So I went east instead. Um, have you had the kind of life that you would have expected when you left on the 3rd of June, 1999? Or did you expect something to be completely different with the last 24 years when you left? No, I think when I left on the 3rd of June, 1999, I I expected to be have won the Perrier Award at the Edinburgh Festival uh, within three years and then get my own Channel 4 chat show. And I, I think I probably expected to have the career Darrow Breen has, except without the astronomy bits. Um, and the Irish language. Uh, well, I I used to be fluent in Irish, actually. I'll have you know, uh, but I've kind of forgotten it all. It's all in there somewhere, but I'd need to spend a month at the Gaelic to, to remember <laughs> shake it, it out again. Yeah. yeah, but it is in there. Um, yeah, so I think I probably expected I wanted to be Ed Byrne or or Dara or Dylan Moran. Um, so obviously that didn't happen. But if if you taken the 17 year old me to one side and said look when you're 50 this is what your situation will be I'd have bitten your arm off <laughs> I think that is as, as good a full stop as any to this conversation Barry Glendening thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me uh, it's been an absolute pleasure Phil. thank you for having me there you go that was Barry Glendening there the accidental journalist I just I really enjoyed that chat with him fascinating guy extremely intelligent and aware and loads of great stories and that kind of thing so what else would you be wanting on the Global Gale podcast listen before you go I have a bit of a yarn for you right I don't know if you remember a couple of months ago there I was talking to you about the new passport card that you can get as an Irish citizen right so you keep your regular passport with all the pages and all the stamps from when you went to Santa Ponza and you went on your J1 and all that kind of thing you can keep that but you can also apply for a credit card size passport you're saying to me phil what am i going to use that for well jesus let me tell you right so i was over in oslo in norway the other week uh, last weekend actually and i had to go over and it was one of these things I was going over for work so somebody else booked it and all i cared about right was the flight out because i didn't want it to be too early on a saturday morning so they said to me these flights are right but yeah yeah that's grand that'll do no bother yeah bang and uh, I didn't look at the return flight at all. So I flew over to Oslo and I did a few days of work and that was grand. And then I looked at the return flight, right? Now I was flying from Oslo to Stockholm and I looked at the return flight. Ethiopian Airlines, boys and girls. Ethiopian Airlines. Now, fantastic airline, really comfortable planes, great food and the whole lot, great service to works. But there's a bit of a problem there, right? Because they don't do a regular shuttle service between Oslo and Stockholm. What they do is they fly in a huge airplane, right? Think the biggest airplane you've seen, the kind of thing that would take you on your J1 over to America. And that's the kind of plane that they have. And they fly it from Oslo and then they stop off in Stockholm and they kick the likes of me off the plane and then they take on more people on their way to Addis Ababa. So, now, what has all this got to do with the Irish passport card? Right, it's like this. In airports, there's two ways you can do it. You can either go through passport control for, you know, for whatever destination, or maybe you don't need to. It might be a domestic flight. If you're in Europe, it might be in Schengen, so you, don't, you just have to show a driver's license or some sort of ID thing, but you don't have to show a passport. But the gate that the Ethiopian Airlines flight was leaving from at the airport in Oslo, it's called Gardamon, you had to go through passport control. 
So there's Muggins there standing there, had a lovely bit of fish and chips in the way, went off, got the train early, loads of time, etc, etc. And then I realised, hang on a second, gate F, oh Jesus, I have to go through passport control. And I didn't have my regular passport with all the pages and the J1 stamps and the stamps for everywhere else I'd been, but I did have the passport card. So I walked up to the window and the fellow says, can you give me your passport? And I handed him the passport card and he says, no, can you give me your passport? Thinking I was an idiot. And I says, that is a passport for that. And he went, all right, so, okay. So he put it down and he scanned the biometric thing or the barcode, or I don't know what it was, might be a QR code, something like that. Scanned all that. And then the thing plinged and it went green. And he went, jeez, it is a passport. So your man, even the border guard, the fellow checking the passports, he didn't even know that Ireland had passport cards in this size, you know. Uh, when I got to Sweden then, they landed at a similar gate, so you had to show your passport to get into Sweden, which normally you don't have to do if you're coming from, from Oslo or from Norway in there. And I think that you know, somebody was telling me, I think it was Tara O'Neill was telling me that you know, there can be fines if you travel without a passport and you're going through these places, because we set up these things, you know, like borders and corridors and everything else like that. They're all in the mind, you know, but we set them up so that we can control how people are moving around. And luckily enough, I showed them the passport card. Now, the Swedish fella on the, on the Swedish side there, he seemed to know what it was, right? But the long and the short of it is that if I did didn't have the passport card lads I probably would have been stuck in Oslo looking for another flight out of there where I didn't have to show a passport or I would have been headed back to the central train station and getting a bus and a train back that would have taken six or seven hours to get to Stockholm right so especially if you're in Europe now as far as I know you can't travel that far in them. So there's no point in showing up at Dublin Airport or at Stansted or at Charles de Gaulle, right? And showing them this and thinking you're going to get to Australia and you're going to get to America. You're not, right? But for travelling within Europe, it seems to work as a sort of a national identity card for us, right? So it's a very good idea to get one. So if you go onto the Department of Foreign Affairs website or if you just Google Ireland passport card, you'll find out to get, how to get it. I think it costs about 30 or 40 quid. But it was an absolute lifesaver for me now in terms of getting home from Oslo last week weekend and uh, I was very grateful to uh, the, the Irish Embassy here in Sweden they were the ones who tipped me off about a few months ago and uh, the ambassador Austin Gormley said you're the kind of fellow who travels a lot you should probably consider getting yourself one of these and himself and the embassy staff there were very helpful and what photographs you needed and all that kind of thing and they got it all sorted out very very quickly and sent to me by registered post so it is well worth doing if you have the chance that is all you'll get from me for this week uh, there's a little tribute if you like coming up to Christy Dignam because they played a gig in Stockholm Aslan played a gig in Stockholm back in 2012 it was I kept saying 2013 all week but it was actually 2012 and uh, there's a podcast an interview with a chap called Owen O'Connor from Wexford about that so if you're an Aslan fan check out Irish in Sweden next week as well uh, that'll be out Monday morning, 7 o'clock Central European time, so a couple of days after this podcast. And if you can, as I say, support the podcast, patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. But the biggest thing you could probably do for me, lads, if you're living in Australia or Canada or America or South America or Africa or Asia or whatever, please share it, right? Because the more people we can reach with this thing, the more stories that we'll find, the more crack we can have, and the more we can connect this great Irish community of 70 million people around the world. Some born in Ireland, some second generation, some third generation, some people who nothing to do with Ireland at all but just like to crack and listen to the Global Gale podcast so if you could share it on your Instagram or your Snapchat or your social media I would very much appreciate it that is it for this week I shall be back again with a, another uh, person from London I think next week as far as I know all going well with the help of God and two policemen as they say uh, but for now have a great week take care of yourselves take care of one another and sure I'll talk to you again next time